Right. I um, we're going to continue on in the parable series that we've been going through this morning. Um, I'm, I'm going to. This is confession time. I must say, when when I sent out the, I normally do a a, a bio of what the series is going to look like, sort of things that I my expectations, time, all that kind of thing. And and this bio for this series. Um, I don't know if I did included it or not, but I had already chosen this parable before I sent it out because it was like, this is what I'm doing and no one else is going to do it. And so um, I did think, wonder, did I actually engineer the entire series just so I could do this? I don't know. I'd hate to think, I'm very gracious to myself, so I'd hate to think I'm that deeply manipulative, but the jury's out. Angela's not here to give her a take on it, but um, whatever. So really, I, I just, for me, this morning is kind of like um, a life message. Like I, I often, I'm a little bit melodramatic, just a little bit, but I often think about what I'd love for people to say about me when I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, a little bit melodramatic. Um, um, and, and really, if, if, you know, like anyone's part of Maharingi Vineyard for any amount of time, and, and I could do something in my role um, that leaves a lasting impression, like this, this is it, this message, this, this view of this story that Jesus tells, like this for me is it. And so I thought, I, I, on one level, I am super excited to be able to share this parable um, with, with all of us this morning. But in a way, as I sat down to write it, it was like this became so, prof- it is so profoundly important to me and something that I've kind of just sort of read about and wrestled with and prayed over and, and that, that it's sort of like, you know, when it means so much, it's like, oh, shoot, this is really hard. And, and this is a disclaimer anyway. Like, I'm, all, I'm only about halfway through this morning, so I'm going to have to do a part two at some point later on in, 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 the, in the series because really there's just so much incredibleness in here. I'll fall short of saying it is really the best parable in the Bible, but, um, you know, one for me that is incredibly profound. Um, it has, for me, I think Jesus uses it to communicate really what is essentially some of the most important things that we can think about as followers of Jesus in that it, it, it is Jesus way communicating this is what the Father is like. Now, this is what, what God is like. There is a sting in the parable, as almost all of them do, is also Jesus uses this parable to really communicate what is, I know for me, over my life, some really uncomfortable reflections back on myself, but really on all of us as humanity. Like, uh, like a, the, the human heart, the human condition. Um, there, there, is a, there is a very uncomfortable <laughs> reflection back that I have found over the years incredibly um, revealing, self-revealing. And so that's where the wrestle comes through in this parable. And so if you have a Bible or, or a device with the Bible, let's go to Luke 15. And before I start the parable, um, really I want to read just the first couple of verses of Luke 15 before we get into it. Because really this is, the, this is kind of, um, in a way, the why 
of, of why Jesus was telling this story. So Luke 15 starts with this. Um, Tax collectors and other, and I love this about the translation that I'm reading from, and other notorious sinners. I don't know. I feel like I would love to have that category one day. Like, um, I was always been a good boy, but like, wouldn't it be great to have someone, oh, watch that Lyndon. He's a notorious sinner. I just feel like that would be a great um, T-shirt or something. But... Um, so, so tax collectors, and we know back from our previous, um, our previous series earlier on, I think last year or whenever that was, you know, that, that idea of tax collectors, this in a first century context are the lowest of the low. They, they are the worst of the worst. And so, so what Jesus is doing is, so tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Yeah, see, that's where I was like, good, I'm so glad Jenny's here. Like, like seriously, like in a first century context, that would be, there would be gasps. It would, it's shocking. And I'm going to say this throughout the morning. Like, we miss so much. And part of what I'm going to do is try to communicate the shocking nature of these stories. We hear them as kind of somewhat poignant, you know, parables that, that kind of have like, like Confucius says, you know. But, but these things weren't designed to be like frigmat, fridge magnets. That was almost a fridge magnets of the first century. They were designed to shock the out of you. Like, really? They were shocking. They, they were designed to shake those listeners. They're designed to shake us out of our current position. And so, so because these churchgoers are getting worked up about who Jesus is spending his time with, who he's eating with. And again, we think, oh, eating is just, you know, the consumption of food. But again, in a first century context, to share a meal, to share a table with someone is to say, I accept you. I, I accept your lifestyle. Those are some uncomfortable 21st century words. And so Jesus told this story because of that mindset, because of that viewpoint. And there's actually three stories in together. It's the, the man and the, the, the shepherd with his, who leaves his 99 sheep. We just sung it. Who leaves his 99 sheep and goes for the one. Any shepherds in the room? No. And, and so there we go, one. Maybe hopeful. Who knows? You know, like... We lose, we have lost 2,000 years later how shocking that is that a, a shepherd would leave 99 sheep and go after one. And then there's another story. He goes on to say, to prove the point even more, he goes on and tells a story about a woman who turned her house upside down looking for one coin. She had 10 silver coins and she lost one. 
turns them all upside down. These three stories, and and the one I'm going to share this morning, they're all together to prove a point about this is what the Father is like. This is who God is. And so picking up in verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now now before you die. So his father agreed and divided his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. There he wasted all of his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept through the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him out into the field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. Then in verse 17, it says, When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. Here, I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And I've I've written this in green because no matter how many hundreds of times I have written or read this or written it out, this to me is just one of the most overwhelming hopeful, beautiful portions of Scripture that, that just every time rip my heart to shreds when I think about this is who God is. So when he returned home, so he, so he returned home to his father, and while he was a long way off, Man, I don't ever want to stop seeing people like that. How often we make people jump through so many hoops and get so close before we see them the way this father sees them. So while he was a long way off, his father saw he was coming and he was filled with love and compassion that he ran to his son. He embraced him and he kissed him. Translation says he kissed him over and over and over again. He couldn't stop kissing him. Man, that's our God. This is the son who's covered in pig crap. He stinks. He's sweaty and dirty. son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. 
put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So let the party begin. And really now, you know, like, like this story, like we've heard it so many times and I kind of have to yell and get a little bit animated just to kind of give us a little bit of oomph. But I tell you, those first century hearers would have been shocked out of their socks. There is so much of this story already that they would have been shaking their heads and almost walking away. It would have disgusted some of them. It would have confounded the others. They would have thought, whatever you've had for breakfast, Jesus, don't ever eat that again. And, but it's only getting started. The most shocking is yet to come. Meanwhile, verse 25, meanwhile, the older son who was in the field working When he returned home, he heard the music and the dancing. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. He says, your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was angry and he wouldn't go inside. And his father came out and begged him. But his son replied, all these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing that you've told me to do. And in all of this time, you never once gave me even a young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet, when this son of yours comes back, after squandering your money on prostitutes, You celebrate by killing the fatted calf. Everyone's concerned about this calf. You know, like, I'm sure the calf was concerned too, but. But his father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this day for your brother. Do you see that first son? Do you see his response? This son of yours, the father's gentle reminder of the other. Man, don't we need to be gently reminded of the other around us are not this son. They're our brother, our sister. We had to celebrate Your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. This this story has been told 
you know, countless amounts of time. And it has been the subject of so many incredible works of art. I was going to have it up here, but it actually is very difficult, the image. But Rembrandt has done an incredible painting of, of this story. It's so simple, but it captures so much of the moment of, of, what has, of, of the father embracing the, the son. And, and so much of this story has filtered down through our, our culture today, even without knowing it. Like, like someone who has no idea of Scripture, if you were to say, what is a prodigal? That, that word prodigal has kind of filtered all the way through. There is something that has really grasps our heart when we hear this story. It may be familiar, and we may lose a lot of its meaning, but something about it grips us. Even, even that, that sort of the phrase about kill the fatted calf, like that has filtered all the way through, through culture. And there is so much, so much incredible meaning and depth of understanding that, that really goes all the way through. But a lot of that has to be filtered through. We have to be able to see it through a first century, oriental, patriarchal, honor, shame worldview. And so I'm going to try in my weakness to try to maybe put some lenses through some of what that means. There really are only three characters in this, in this story. And and there is within just these three people, a father and two sons, there is so much interconnected, relational, interpersonal stuff going on here that we miss so much when we consider our, say, father-son or, or father-child relationship. That each and every one of these characters is an essential element to this story and to the point that Jesus is trying to make. I think Luke, in retelling this, isn't, doesn't waste a single word. Every word that's chosen is chosen for a reason, and it is to reveal the powerful message that Jesus is trying to say. Again, don't forget why he told the story. Don't forget those first two, two verses in, in um, the beginning of chapter 15. Don't forget that this was the crescendo of two other stories. This is a really important message that Jesus wants his followers to get. This is a really important message Jesus wants his followers to get 2,000 years later. We've got to get this. Like if we get nothing, if you ever get anything from me, let it be this. And the, the first place I want to start, and, and like I say, this is definitely going to be a part two to it, maybe even a part three if I really get going. But, but um, I just want to do really go where we, we thought, does anyone have, and it's not a big deal, but does anyone have, I want to first start looking at the son's request, the younger son's request. Because for many of us, the thought of, hey, dad, can I have, does anyone have in their Bible the word inheritance, that he asked for his inheritance? 
Yep. So that's wrong. Can you get a pencil and cross that out in your Bible? Because he is not asking for his inheritance. Because 2,000-something years later, to, to sort of, that's not an unreasonable request, is it? Like, you know, look at Auckland house prices. You know, if you had a, a mother or a father with, a, with a, a decent nest egg, that's actually kind of a nice thing to do. It could be, you know, where I'm from, it could be a way to avoid very hefty um, estate taxes. It's, you know, it loses its sting. But what, what the son is asking for is not an inheritance because in a first century context, an inheritance has strings attached. An inheritance still means there are responsibilities to the you know, if he were to say, I'm ask, I want my inheritance, that would mean in a first century context, he has responsibilities to his family. Again, and when, I, when we hear family, their, their family was so much more than two sons and a father. They live in a patriarchal society. Their, their entire village, their entire clan were interwoven and interconnected. The offense that he caused his father, he did not just cause his father. He caused his whole village, his whole, his whole clan. The shame that that, that request brought on, hit on to the father, rippled throughout their entire community. It was a disgusting thing to say. And Luke very, very specifically uses a word that is nowhere else found in the New Testament, and it is oisia. And what that means is not an inheritance, again, because it's very clunky. If he were to say inheritance, it's a very couple of short words. And, but yet Luke uses it in a way that it's a very clunky way of asking, but it's, it's very specific. And the son was saying, I don't want my inheritance. I just want the money. Show me the money. I want none of the responsibility. I want none of the relationship. I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with this family. And I want nothing to do with what expectations that comes with it. Give me the money. He is breaking. He's asking for every relational connection to be broken and for him to be given his money. And to a first century hearer, that is shocking. It's awful. You couldn't have said something worse. Look at that. I'm... This story is so important. And if those first hearers were shocked by the request, the response would have knocked them on their backside. Like it, it, I, you know, hazard a guess, what would have been the first century appropriate response of the father to his son's request? Does anyone have a willow stick? You know, it would to beat the crap out of him. Well, first it would have been an angry refusal and then to give him a hiding that ended all hiding probably for the rest of the clan to join in as well, for the village, because everyone would have heard it. You think Snell's Beach is a small town. Everyone knows what's going on here in this story. Everyone knew what he said. Or if they didn't, they surely would by the time the sun went down. 
And so everyone in hearing this story would have said the acceptable right response of the father is to refuse and to beat it out of him. And then they would have kind of all gone away saying, yeah, good story. You know, good reminder to stay in line, to toe the line. Like that story, Jesus. But he doesn't. Instead, the father, who, by the way, never, ever, throughout the course of the story, ever, ever stopped being the father. Ever. Like ever. So think about that now. Ever. No one. Never stopped. No matter how offensive, no matter what terrible things they say or they do, how awful they act, how disrespectful they respond, ever, ever stopped being the Father. He grants his son his request. He grants him freedom, even freedom to turn away. One of the books that I, I've read um, over and over again that I just love so much um, is a guy named um, Kenneth Bailey. And he spent heaps of his career in, in sort of living in, in kind of um, Middle Eastern and doing lots of research around, around this whole concept of what would have that living in that patriarchal um, village society, what that would have looked like in the story. And he writes a book, The Cross and the, and the Prodigal. And I just wanted to quote him in this. If the father had disowned the son, this is going back to the never ever stopped, ever. But if the father had, had disowned the son, there would be no possibility of reconciliation. The father's suffering provides the foundation of possibility for the son's return. Can we translate that now, 2,000 years later, to the world around us, to the people in our lives, to ourselves and to others? And can we hear that one more time? That the father, if he had disowned the son, there would be no possibility of reconciliation. But the father's suffering provides the foundation of possibility for the son's return. You know, this story just absolutely blows apart the first century view and narrative of father, of fatherhood. And, and we are so different 2,000 years later, and yet we are so similar. We so need our view of Father blown apart. That Jesus in this story just paints a matchless picture, a lens through which if we dig at it and dig at it and remind ourselves over and over again, it's a lens through which we can see 
or, or just even kind of imagine what God is really like. One of the, one of the biggest things I have, I have wrestled with in this story is the question of, um, and someone said to me, what, what in this story, what is the, the judgment of the Father, because I know in your head, I know in all, because I've had it in my head is, yeah, but he had, to, he had to repent first. He had to turn around. He had to come to his senses. And that'll be in part two. Because could he? Or was he just really hungry? Like really, does, does the power of the reconciliation lie with us? What does the Father's judgment look like in this story? You know, for so often in, in my faith journey, I needed God. And, and it took me a long time to articulate it in myself. But there are times when I, need, I needed God just to be angry. Like I needed him to like, like get mad and dish out a hiding, whether it's to me or to someone else. Come on, you don't be surprised. I've been honest long enough. You know, like, don't we sometimes need God just to be the, the father that we'd expect him to be and give them a hiding? Because what they're doing is really awful. Who they are is wrong. What they say is offensive. Oh, are we being shaken a little bit like those first century hearers would have been? You know, I hear so much and I see so much of, of this narrative that we actually, without being able to verbalize it, we just need God to get mad sometimes and give someone a hiding. Sort them out. But it doesn't feel like that's what Jesus is saying God is like. It feels almost like Jesus is communicating that there is something about God's love that is, that is more powerful than a hiding. That maybe mercy does triumph over judgment. Like, I'm so glad it feels really uncomfortable because that's exactly how this story was meant to be perceived. And just like, I'm going to end there. Like, Lily, that's it until part two. But like, if we go to the end, like, I think Jesus made for this story just to end like that and to leave everyone who heard it just like this. Shoot, maybe there's more to the Father than I thought. There is um, 
there's so many incredible incredible things to come you know with the with the son's interactions with the father with the father's request i i know for me i kind of spent many years um having lived kind of like albeit i was the younger son um but i was the good one and my older brother who was the older son was the the terrible prodigal um and i used to i used to revel in in sort of being the good son do you know and and yet there's something about this message in part 2 whenever that comes there's something about um those two sons were incredibly similar if not the same thing neither son understood the, the desire of the father for relationship that's right neither one and i'd put it to us humbly we could spend the rest of our life wrestling with being reminded of God's heart for relationship with us with everyone there isn't there isn't a person you'll ever lay eyes on that God does not desire whose heart doesn't break for broken you know with with doesn't break for that person that doesn't want anything more than relationship with them who wouldn't kill a thousand fatted calves for them like how how incredibly different could we see the world and the people in it if we saw them the way the father sees them let's leave it there i encourage you to to read through um read through this fall in love with it like i have you know because there is so much in it read this book um read that book the cross and the prodigal um fantastic read a commentary on it but more than that is wrestle with its message like genuinely wrestle with what does this story say what is jesus trying to say about the judgment of the father in this story how convinced is jesus that love conquers everything and i can hear butts all in our heads we all have those buts but but what if we left our buts why don't we stand and i'll pray i hope you're okay with the uncomfortableness let let god come into it because it's it's really good it's really good to be stirred up and to think i don't know if i've got the father right even the silliness of saying it you know like a, how could i but father i i thank you so much i thank you that you you use these three stories but you use the the shocking nature of this 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 interaction between a father and his two sons to to again stir us
God, I thank you that, I thank you for your judgment that in the face of our cruel and callous and hurtful and shocking encounters with you, your response is love. That you never break relationship with us. You are always our Father. And God, I thank you that even when we are a long way off, even when we're a long way off when we've never even left the house, you look for us and you run to us. God, I thank you in this story that in both occasions, Father, you come out to meet us. Whether we identify with the older son or the younger, in both cases, you come out to meet us. You go where we can't go. Or better yet, you go where we won't go. And you invite us back. Father, I pray that in the, in the week ahead, God, would you again remind us of who you are. Amen. Wonderful.